Good morning, church, or almost good afternoon. But blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Those were the words of Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the peacemakers. I think all of us sit here, or some of you stand here, and we're two days away from the most polarized presidential election in recent history. And assuming that most of you have already mailed in or dropped off your ballot or voted, I want to give you hope. No matter who wins the election, I think there's hope. I don't just want to give you theological hope, but practical hope. I think we've been talking about theological hope. And that would be truth such as Christ is king, such as we represent his kingdom, such as it doesn't matter who sits in the Oval Office, we must remember that our king has been sitting on his throne the entire time. That is the ultimate hope. But there is also practical hope. And so some have asked, why are certain conservative evangelicals, and our church would fall under that camp, writing and speaking as if this is our last stand? I want you to hear this morning in an introduction something that hopefully would bring calm in the midst of all the extreme voices that you're hearing out there. Let me put it to you this way, and I'll tell you why we have practical hope. I firmly believe this to be true. When two people disagree because they both believe their opinion is true, the only way to discover what is actually true is to allow for respectful and civil disagreement to continue. In time, the truth will come out. The most tragic thing that can happen to our government is if the government makes it illegal to disagree with them. And I think this is why so many conservative evangelicals are concerned about the cultural tide of the progressive left. But when you consider reality, you're talking about the extreme left that wants to eliminate anyone who disagrees with them, especially those who hold traditional Christian values. So you have respected authors, pastors, leaders, writing and speaking as if this is our last stand. But this danger, though it's real, it's just as real with the extreme right. And unfortunately, what you hear out there that's causing stress for most Americans are the extreme voices. But the reality is, you are not part of that extreme. I don't know too many of extreme people that would walk into a church called First Chinese Baptist Church. And most Americans are not extreme missed, and that's why they're worried and concerned. So should we be prayerfully concerned? I think we always have to be prayerfully concerned because Jesus warned us that there will be persecution for the church in the last days. But here's why I'm not in panic, and here's why you shouldn't panic, and this is more practical. In order for us to lose all our religious freedom, our entire government structure would have to be overhauled. And this is assuming, this is assuming a lot, that the extreme left take over all three branches of our government, and that conservatives just lay down and die. <laughs> And I'm talking about in a secular 
sinful fallen society, beloved. I don't think those two things are going to happen. Post-election, our nation will continue to have differences. There will always be political differences. But the structure of our government, here's your practical comfort, is built on a foundation that allows for civil disagreement. The powers are separated and not centralized. Some schools are not teaching this anymore. Meaning there's no single president, Democrat or Republican, there's no single political party that, cons that can successfully consolidate and centralize all the powers of governance. I want you to think about this, and I want, to think, I want you to think about how you can have you can have a Republican president and a Democrat majority in one of the legislative branches, one of the legislative houses, either the House or the Senate, or the other way around. You can have a Democratic president, and you can have a Senate that disagrees. Remember who elects the president. It's the people. And then the president elects the judges in the Supreme Court. But imagine how horrible it would be if the Supreme Court elected the president by hand. Now, the president has veto power, but he doesn't have power over the ruling of the Supreme Court. Beloved, that's what I mean. And sometimes we get frustrated because nothing gets done in Washington. It takes forever. But hear me when I say this. That's what makes America great. It's not one single president. It is not any policies of the right or the left. It is the fact that this nation is built on a structure that allows for civil and respectful disagreement so that when policies are made, Antonin Scalia said this, this the best, when policies are made, it's so tedious that it, it's a good policy. It's a policy that's for the common good, not for the extreme. And if it turns out not to be good, it's going to be repealed eventually. And so that's why when people say, Pastor, are you afraid that we're going to lose all our religious freedom? I think a travesty would have to happen. Is it possible? Sure, it's possible in our lifetime. But I believe in the common good of common grace of the average American. And I believe ultimately in the church. And this is why as a church, our message is to continue to unify around Christ. We do our part to study the facts, to vote according to the truth, and then to trust Christ and to love each other. I, this week was a powerful testimony of how the fires united us. You know, regardless of where you stand politically, the fires unite us. Because when there are fires, the body of Christ rallies together, and you remember that we are humans, that we are human beings. And even more so, you might remember that someone you might be caring for is a fellow brother or sister in Christ. And so the most dangerous thing that we can do as a church is to adopt any extreme voice, either on the left or the right, that seeks to silence the other side. This is why when you interact in the public square, your goal is never to have everyone agree with you. That is just nonsensical and impossible. It is always, blessed are the peacemakers. Listen, learn, love, 
And then, yes, stand for truth. But I think the church does have the capability to do this. And when people look at us and we're standing on the truth and they say, you guys are foolish, I want you to remind you of the words of Paul. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is the power of God to give us mental clarity and sanity. It is the power of God to ground our emotions when everybody else is drowning. It is the power of God to win those who are opposed to the cross. It is the power of God to save many of us who would not believe in Jesus Christ because it is so foolish to believe in the gospel, but it is because of the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you understand the power of God, then you will understand foolish wisdom. I've entitled our sermon today, Foolish Wisdom, subtitled, Divine Reversal of Worldly Power. Once again, title, Foolish Wisdom, subtitled, Divine Reversal of Worldly Power. Political power is one form of worldly power. Worldly power is effective to a large degree. But worldly power has no power over what is invisible, spiritual, and what binds the conscience and the soul. Spiritual power is eternal, and spiritual power is the realm where you are battling principalities and powers of the air, but where the resurrected Christ reigns. And spiritual power belongs to us. It belongs to us. The down payment and evidence of that are the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The context of why they had division in the church in Corinth was not Republican versus Democrat. But you had people who did not come from the elite powers of society. People were, who were not educated or carried degrees from the intellectual elite of the Greco-Roman society of their time. It was not people who had wealth that was so great that they could control the political course of the Roman Empire. And they did not come from families of nobility. They were mostly people who realized that because they had nothing and because they were nobodies, that the gospel appealed to them. But there was a problem. The world had taught them how to think about power. And in Corinth, it was about status and honor. That was the ancient Greek society. Honor in society, different status. And so you could see how confused they were as a younger church to say, wow, we have spiritual gifts. And there are certain spiritual gifts that are more public and upfront. And so let's elevate the people with those gifts to higher status. And let's look down upon the people who maybe have the behind-the-scenes gifts. Let's divide over who has better gifting. Let's divide whoever, who has better rhetoric, who is better in the church, and how foolish that is when all of them are equal. And when you put them in the world, they're nobodies. And when you put them into church, into the church, they're trying to use worldly power and worldly status, including what you see in some churches today is that they're trusting in political power for, to uphold their Christian values. And they're worried when that power doesn't seem to be winning. And I'm here to remind you once again today that our power is a spiritual power. And so that's why the title, 
the subtitle, Foolish Wisdom, the title Foolish Wisdom, the wisdom that's foolishness to the world, but it is the power to save, and it is a divine reversal of worldly power. This begins at the cross, where the king of kings lowers himself. He lowers himself so that his power can be distributed, not centralized, and distributed to the least of these and to every believer, carrying that power and their value because they belong to Christ. In fact, if you have God's word, turn to 1 Corinthians 1.18. Pastor Albert has done a masterful job in expository preaching, and I stand on his shoulders this morning. Two masterful sermons reminding us of the central thrust of this entire unit. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18 is one entire unit that leads all the way up to chapter 2, verse 5. The central thrust is about the power of the preaching of the Word of God, the power of the cross, which is not only offensive to the world, but it seems weakness. Who would believe that a man could raise from the dead? Who wants to uplift and fly the banner of a Savior who horrendously hung there on a cross, an instrument of torture for the vilest and the worst of criminals? to be crucified, and that is our king compared to the power and the influence of Caesar? Jesus is the king of the broken. Jesus is the king of the weak. Jesus is the king of the nobodies and the nothings. And that's why in 1 Corinthians 1.18, it says that, that the word of the cross is foolishness, folly. That word, foolishness, in the Greek, it is moros. It is moros. And one psychologist coined the word moron off of the ancient Greek word moros. And so if people were to even insult us in this world and to call us moronic, I think we just have to receive it. I was tempted to entitle this sermon A Church of Morons. And I thought that I might lose my job. <laughs> I thought I better not say that when 5013C might be in question in the next decade. So the church is the church of the foolish to the world. But the wise, because of the cross. And it, it is in that context that we dive into point number one. Point number one this morning is God's unlikely people. God's unlikely people. And we see this in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 to 28. Let me read this to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. It says, consider your calling. This is talking about your salvation calling. Brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. Verse 27, but God chose. What is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Three times you have what nerds refer to as a henna clause. Henna clauses in the Greek are in order that statements. So you have God choosing the nobodies and the nothings in this world, and three times there's a reason why. 
And it's always to elevate those who don't have power, don't have worldly power. It is to elevate to the seat of the kingdom of God and the precious children of God. These people, to those belong the kingdom. It is the nothings of this world. God has a purpose for this because he knows that those who have everything are less likely. Not that they can't be saved and not that he doesn't choose them, but when they have everything and know everything, it's harder to convince such people that you need to worship a man who died on a cross and claimed to rise from the dead. It's foolishness. I want you to rem- I want to remind you that this is very early on in the church. There's a lot of very intelligent people here in this, or everyone's intelligent except for me. And some of you have, to have started very excellent organizations, both for-profits, some of you non-profit. And my question is this. If you were to start an organization, and if you could choose to build the foundation of that organization with anybody, anyone, who would you choose? Why would you choose the nothings and the nobodies? You would no doubt, if you could, you would choose the powerful in this world. You would choose the wealthiest in this world. You would choose the elite in this world. Because why? They are influential. A lot of what you see on social media, even in regards to politics, are people just buying into the people of influence. If the people of influence say something, then a lot of people are just going to listen to them. Nobody's going to listen to the nobodies. The nobodies have nothing to offer. But I think Christ's Christ's reason for this is so that he can be, he can be magnified through weak, broken, and humble people. And that is what the Corinthians failed to understand. The spiritual gifts were to be exercised in humility and brokenness. The the essence of a spiritual gift is a reminder that anything that you can do well for the kingdom is not by your own power. That there is no boasting power in exercising a gift that was endowed and instilled and, and given to you by God and by his grace that you could not choose or earn or achieve. Even the leaders in the, in the church are supposed to be servants and are supposed to lead an organization where everyone serves one another. This is the power of the church. This is what unifies the church, that the church is equal. Some will be rich. Some will be poor. But all are equal, not because all are the same. It's not communism. It is because of diversity, but a different type of diversity. It is a diversity where everyone's gifts are valuable. So true diversity is not equalizing every, everyone so that there's no, no more distinctions. In fact, the very thing that creates true biblical equality is a respect for distinction, God-given distinction and diversity. So don't listen to the left or the right on social media. Read literature, theology, and books that will inform your mind with classical thinking so that you can discern for yourself what true equality and what true diversity is. Once you eliminate 
objective truth. You no longer have any distinct truth to point to to say that something is evil or wrong. That's the beauty of the church, that they all have something objective. It's Christ. It is the cross. That's what unifies them. It's not where they came from that determines someone's value. But see, that's what's happening in the Greco-Roman world. If you came from the powerful, if you were of the noble of birth, if you were of the intellectual class, then you get to determine your worth and everyone else's worth. But God is very different. He says it's the truth first that then informs you of values, your value and everybody else's values. So that's why you can't cancel truth. You cannot cancel truth. Once you cancel truth, nobody is valuable. The Corinthians had to understand this. Now, Paul is framing his argument in Jeremiah 9, uh, off of Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24. I will come back to that because he does a full-on quote in verse 31. But the first sub-point, under point number one, I want you to see, is that God chose the foolish to shame the intellectual. God chose the foolish to shame the intellectual. Verse 26, wise according to worldly standards. Now, Pastor Albert already explained this. What I will add is the worldly standards. When it says according to the flesh, that's what it means. Worldly standards can be literally translated. Some of your translations will say according to the flesh. These are human standards, not divine standards. And in Greco-Roman culture, we learned last week about the debaters, the philosophers. They would be considered the intellectual class. And the very wealthy and powerful got that high-end education. Today, when you think about the intellectual class in our society, that would be the top of academia. So think about the most elite institution in the eyes of the world. These would be your Ivy League university systems. Now, don't get me wrong. There are Christians in those institutions. There are bearers of truth, but they shine like lights, beacons of lights in dark hallways of postmodernity and beyond. When you go to these schools and most of the top secular universities in the classes, they will teach you things that God doesn't exist whether it be from science or philosophy. And we can't just say that it stays in the ivory tower. Things like critical theory begin there, then it ends up in politics, then it ends up in the education system outside of higher education, then it ends up in the workplace, HR people understand this, then it ends up in sports, ends up everywhere. And what you see in society is not so much that racism is not a problem and that we don't need to deal with it, but that it's everything. Everything is about race. Where do you think that originated? And then eventually it's eliminate truth and eliminate traditional Christian values. Where do you think that, that started with? That started not on social media. It started with the intellectual, with those in society who have the symbolic capital because of the institutions they represent to shape minds 
through their literature, through their essays, through their publications, and through their lobbying. So we can't think for a moment that when Paul says elsewhere, be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that it is not a battle of the mind that shapes the heart of generations. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, according to this world, the intellectually elite. The second sub-point under point number one, God chose the weak to shame the powerful. Notice verse 26, Paul says, not many were powerful. He did this to shame the strong. The powerful and strong here is not talking about the bodybuilder. Right? It's not talking about the person who does CrossFit, but instead it's talking about the person who's not fit for the cross. It's talking about people who in that time, you're not talking about the middle class or the upper middle class. Thank you for laughing. You're talking about the people who are so wealthy that they can control the magistrates. They, they can control the senators of the Roman Senate. They're so noble, they control government. Money gives you power politically and socially, but the cross is about weakness. And the power of God is opposed to the power of this world. Now, I alluded to this, but I want to unpack this more because it alludes to the gospel. Christ Jesus shows us what to do with power. Shows us what to do with power. And this is why the church is so different from the political world. Christ is the most powerful human being that walked this earth. He is the divine son of God, but 100% God, 100% man. And in his hypostatic brilliance, the son of God chose to redeem people, not by riding in on a sovereign horse. He will do that. But the first time he comes to do redemption, he dies a criminal's death. Now, he used his power as he walked the earth to bless the weak and to bless others. He used his power not to buddy up with the elite, but to heal the sick. He used his power to redeem sinners. He used his power to raise the dead. And then the king of kings went to the cross to die for sinners. And he used his power, his sinless status, his status of high honor in society, not to buddy up with special interests of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but he used his sinless and perfect power to give salvation to sinners like you and me, to people who recognize that we cannot save ourselves by our merit, by our birth, by our wealth, by anything. And so his power is not centralized. His power is distributive or distributed. And that's evident in the context of 1 Corinthians, what they're fighting over, power of spiritual gifts. They don't get it. It's not about political or centralized power. It is about the power of God modeled after the cross, distributed across to the weakest of people so that everyone in the kingdom of God has the power of the cross. 
that it is not because of anything we achieved or accomplished, that if even if people get saved through evangelism, it is because of the power of the Spirit. Christ never centralized his power, and in the church, it is the same way. The church must have a strong leadership, but that leadership is in its structure. It's in how the church is constituted. There are pastors and deacons. They can't control the church. Pastors are called by local congregations that make sure they meet the qualifications. Pastors are called by churches that elect them, that nominate them, that allow them to be approved. And pastors are supposed to be shepherds and servants, not dictators. Deacons, the word deacon means servants. Servants, leader, lead servants. And everyone, Peter calls every believer a priesthood. Every believer is a priesthood of believer. This is so different from the centralized institution of the Jewish temple system, where you had this special temple system where there's high priests, and then there's priests, and then there's, there's the Jewish men who had special seats of honor, and then there were Jewish women, and then there were God-fearers who worshipped outside in certain courts. These are Gentiles who believed in the Jewish God. And then there's everybody else that's unclean. It was a hierarchical system where authority was centralized to the top. And Christ shows us how different the church is. And that's why the church must be unified, because every person is valuable because of the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the dignity and the value of the image of God being made perfect through Christ, who redeems that image in the heart of the believer. This is how Jesus' definition of power is vastly different from the world. And if you see how powerful this is, this is why if the, if the church would stop being polarized, we actually offer exactly what America needs. An institution that loves each other based on power and respect that's distributed. Where the leaders are true servants. Or supposed to be. Point number three, sub-point number three under point number one. God chose the low and despised to nullify the world's elites. God chose the low and despised to nullify the world's elite. Now notice back in verse 26, not many of the Corinthians were noble. Now these are not the nobles from Nogales. Instead, God did not choose the noble. Some of you, well, your diamond bar is not in the same league anymore, right? But I would say the Brahmas would say, amen, pastor. Amen. Or, or the Roland Raiders in here would say, amen, pastor. These are not the nobles from Nogales. These are the nobles from Rome. And in verse 26, it says, not many were noble. God did not choose the noble. Instead, in verse 28, it says, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are not. This idea of bring to nothing means to nullify their status in the church, which means you can't come into the church and say, I have a lot of money, or I'm a Kennedy, <laughs> or I come from a powerful family, or I'm a superstar celebrity, so give me honor. That's not how it works in the church. The church, it says, okay, that's great, but 
How's your character? How's your service? Those are the things that qualify people for leadership. And so the word nullify simply means to make ineffective. That's what it's saying. It's saying secular powers are ineffective in a place where the only currency is spiritual power. Of course, the elite are going to have very effective means in the secular realm. But the spiritual realm is completely different. And so Paul's tone is eschatological because he, he's talking about nullification on the last day. So one, when you come into the church, all of your secular status is nullified and we're equal at the cross. But then when you get to heaven and when you, when you stand before the king, there will be a day of judgment where every soul will stand before the true judge. And on that day, he will nullify people, everyone, who thinks that they are something in this world. No one's going to be able to come before the king and say, I had a certain status or value or family name. That's why I should go into heaven. And that's simply point number one. Point number one is God's unlikely people. He chose the foolish. He chose the weak. He chose the lowly in society in, in order to shame the wise, to shame the strong, to nullify the elite. Point number two, major point number two is God's ultimate purpose. So point number one, God's unlikely people. Point number two, God's ultimate purpose. Now look with me at verses 29 to 31. Verse 29, verse 29 says, So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, that's Christ, you are in Christ Jesus, who be became to us wisdom from God. You nerds, that this is a dative of advantage. Righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I'm going to explain to you why that's, important in a moment now verse 29 it says so that this is important unlike the first three henna clauses right to shame the wise to show the powerful that they're not that powerful this is a hoopos in the greek for the two nerds here and what that tells you is that this is god's ultimate purpose it's not just the ultimate purpose for this passage it is his entire purpose for the entire thrust, including next week's message. His entire, this entire unit of thought, chapter 1, and leading into chapter 2, is so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This is the purpose of all of the division in the church, disunity in the church. He's saying, look, I nullified all of you. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's his ultimate purpose. This is different from he chose the foolish to shame the wise. Henna. He chose the weak to shame the strong. He chose the low and despised to bring to nothing those that are. Henna clauses. Hupos. So that. Ultimate purpose. No human, being, no human being might boast in the presence of God. Now, verse 29 continues into verse 30. It says, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. 
right, became to us wisdom from God. Now, here's why the grammar matters. Here's why we need to go to school. Because some interpreters get confused. And if you read this literally in the English, it's going to sound really funny. And it's as if Jesus Christ became four things for us, right? If you read this wrong, it says Jesus Christ became, one, the wisdom from God. Well, we would say Jesus is the wisdom of God, but he became wisdom from God for us. He became righteousness. He became sanctification. He is sanctification. He sanctifies us. He doesn't become sanctification. You don't sanctify someone who's sinless. He became redemption. He he accomplished redemption. So people get confused. And so what you need to understand is that the word wisdom is the main thing here, is the main topic. Righteousness, sanctification, and redemption are in opposition to the word wisdom. And all this tells you in layman terms is that this is what's different from the world. The world says if you're wise, then you will be powerful, you will be wealthy, you will be intellectual, you will be elite. And what Paul says is that the wisdom that's given to us, that's foolishness to the world, how do you know that you're wise in Christ? Well, there are three fruits of this wisdom. Number one, the first one is that you receive a righteous standing from God. That's the first fruit. It's not that Jesus became the righteous of God. He gave us a righteous standing before God in this context. And then what else? Sanctification is given to you. You're becoming more like Christ. That's very different from this world. That's how you know that it's foolishness to the world. It's wisdom to God. And then you're receiving redemption, which means you've been redeemed from spiritual slavery. Now, I want you to think how foolish this is. You go out into the secular world, and people ask you, why should I be a Christian? How's that wise? What are the, what are the benefits? Look, I follow the world, and I get wealth, and I get elite status and I get respect for being an intellectual what do you get and you say well the wisdom that I get is a righteous standing before God the wisdom that I get is sanctification I get to become more like Christ in my character the wisdom that I get is that I was redeemed from spiritual slavery what you're redeemed for what spiritual slavery what is that people look at you and they say moros that's idiocy that's moronic that is the point Paul's making. That people will look at you and say, that is nothing. You are nobody. It's nothing. And then you go to verse 31, and it says that's exactly the point. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Jesus' point is to break us down. Break us down so that we say we got nothing of this world that makes us valuable ultimately, and all I have is Christ. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. I have nothing. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. What do those words even mean to you? It means this, 1 Corinthians 1.31, that, that I have no other boast but Christ. I have no other wisdom. 
but Christ. The perfect wisdom of our God. What does that mean? It's Christ. And so here's where, in verse 31, Paul is actually closing out by quoting Jeremiah 9, 23. Let me read to you Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Paul, Jeremiah wrote this, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, human intellect. Let not the mighty man boast in his might, political and social power. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And you're only going to delight in love, justice, and righteousness if you embrace Christ-centered weakness. So the big idea of this morning's message, and you can fill this in on your paper, is that God chose the nothings in this world so that Christ could be our boast in everything. God chose the nothings in this world so that Christ could be our boast in everything. I will end here, and we'll continue this next week. This week, I encourage you to pray for God's peace, and then go to sleep. With the way things are going, we're not going to know the election results Wednesday morning, right? It's, I don't know how long it's going to take for them to figure out and then fight over it, maybe. So just go to sleep and rest and come to church next week. Because whatever the results will be, 2020 is going to continue. There may be more fires. COVID-19 is still an issue. Political divide is true. Polarization will, be, will continue. Sports will still be there. All kinds of trials we will face. Economic challenges. And the biggest thing that will bring us through is the unity of the church and the willingness to listen and love each other because we believe in the cross, which is foolishness to the world, but wisdom for those who believe. Let me pray for us. Father, we come before you, and we thank you for the cross. We thank you because the cross shows us something that is so powerful that it's hard for us to put our minds around. But in your weakness, you made perfect, Lord, giving us the righteous standing before God, made perfect sinners, and you are perfecting us. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would continue to work in our hearts, that you would continue to sanctify us, that you would give us wisdom in Christ, that you would remind us of who we are, not because of the status we have in this world, but because of who we are, because you've saved us simply. And then inform us of what it means, Lord, to live in this world. Help us, Lord, never to run into our enclaves, but to be salt and light in a world that so desperately needs to see the love of a Savior. Help us to worship you as King. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.